Wardcast episode 126, go. I'm Dylan Alvento, and I am joined by Jonathan Lear, PR at Megacast Studios. How you doing, Jonathan? Doing good. How you doing? I'm doing great. You know, we took a took a weekend off to actually go down to uh, playthrough. Uh, I didn't end up making it to playthrough, but <laughs> so uh, I had some car troubles. But other than that, it was it was good. I'm doing good. Hey, you know, making plans is half the battle. Yeah, no kidding. I know. I know. Uh, Mega Cat was like a sponsor down there. I saw the logo on the uh, on the old website. Oh, we we try we try to go to every event we can. We can force poor James to go to. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I saw their booth. I saw the Mega Cat Studios booth at magfest and i was like oh it's a cool looking booth but i didn't get a chance to stop by and then i saw it again at pack south when i went there to do uh my panel and i was like okay i need to take the time now to to go talk to see what these people are about because like obviously they're they're putting in the effort to travel i need to see what this is all about yeah they uh they definitely have a really strong presence for the size of the company at those events it's all about the you know having the displays. They really go all out with the custom banners and everything along that lines. There's actually you know people don't really think about how you know how many don't make the cut, like how many banners, but they really just constantly cranking them out. It's really impressive, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a good looking banner and like really pulls people's eyes in. Yeah. Well, when you're at cons like that, you really only have a few seconds to pull the interest of a you know potential viewer. Um, like a like for a lot of booths, not like it takes them usually a year or two to get it down because you know you'll see people just just basically sucked into certain areas, and then uh, and then other ones are just barren, and it really can go down to what can catch their interest as fast as possible. Right, exactly. Yeah, I know for like my first show, my first show was actually Magfest uh for 2017. And the um I didn't have any signage, I don't think. I mean, we had like a, a tablecloth and that was pretty much it. And then I was and then I looked around, I was like, "Oh crap, I need to actually bring some signage." And then like through the course of last year, I was like trying to see how I can improve my booth. And right now I just have like a foam board poster that i had custom printed and i want to upgrade to one of those like nice vinyl vinyl ones that i see everyone carrying around oh yeah definitely it's it's always like it's it's such a like it puts it's so much more work than people think like they walk by a booth like oh that's neat but they don't know that that's that that's like some serious like cutthroat cultivation of you know banners and stuff like that like it's competitive yeah definitely definitely um you said you told me before we started recording um, that you've just recently started working at Mega Cat. So you've been there for like three months or so. Um, I would say yeah, three months. Let's say that. <laughs> that sounds like a good number. I like that number. Yeah. Is that is that part of your responsibilities there for PR? Or are you more just like reaching out to press and and like what all encompasses your role as PR for there? That's a hard question because PR is such a a loose title it, like like i could when i say i'm pr like another company is totally different so i'm kind of like like it is reach out but it's also like semi recruiting content creators you know uh 
I, I, heck, I even like record some videos footage sometimes for games, you know, because I happen to be a, a small live stream on the side, so I have the setup. But you know, it's just little things. Like I'm kind of like PR, and then what else I can do in my little off time? You know, like catch all. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like how indie studios are run primarily it's like yeah this is gonna be like your main responsibility but like we're gonna probably need you for a number of other things oh totally sometimes i ask like am, am i actually pr like like i just want to review because you know they'll be they'll, that's how it is but i love it it's fun it's a great learning experience and how big is the team oh boy well we have a lot of we have a lot of uh freelance but I would say if you include all the freelance, we are actually above 20 staff. Wow. Okay. I know. That, that's what I say too because you know you don't you stop and think about it. You have people at the office and then you have just so many people passionate about this kind of, you know, this kind of work. For a lot of people, it's, it's a real – it's a passion project, you know, making things that remind them of their childhood. So we have pe- new people that jump in all the time and, you know, new people that, you know, come and go. It's just the nature of – this kind of work right so speaking primarily about like like you're saying things that remind people like that nostalgia factor like you guys primarily work on like uh custom nes cartridges is that like your bread and butter um right now it is i, I would say when people think of mega cat they think of retro cartridges you right know? we don't want to be known only for it but we also don't want to lose identity well, that's a good niche to be in it really is. It's a hard niche. I'm not going right. to lie because, you know, people really like retro gaming, but it's that's not entirely true um, because what people really like is the games they grew up on. And it is difficult to make a game that competes with people's fond memories. It's really an uphill battle, but, so, you know, some of, these, some of our games really connect with people. They're like, like you know, sometimes they don't even they thought that they missed the title, you know, like, like I've never heard of coffee crisis, you know, where's the bed? Well, it's new. Like, you know, that shocks some people and we really do get some serious, serious fanboys over, uh, you know, our cartridges. That's pretty cool. And, and I was telling, um, my colleague, Nick Nundahl, who came to, to pack South with me. Um, and we stopped by your, uh, the mega cat studios booth together. And I, I kind of had this discussion with him after we left the show that day is that, you know, it's it's a much easier proposition, I feel like, to be in the the business of making custom NES cartridges now that things like the Retron and the NT and and custom fabricated NES remake consoles exist. It's we we really are in a blessed time for it to be a retro gaming company because you know it's not something that's new, but. You know, it, it, it. There's been retro, you know, games coming out since, well, like since you know early two thousands earlier, but now we finally have this like renewed interest. This it's it's not it's like a it's a surge of just everyone wants to be in it. You know, I mean the the uh, the NES, you know, the mini NES and the mini SNES. I can't think of their actual. Yeah, the classics. Yeah, yeah. the classic editions. Yeah, people are like fighting over those, and that's that's a great feeling when you're in a retro field because you're like, you know, it's, it's actively talked about as opposed to before you really had to even explain to people why you were making retro games. Cause it, 
it is a it's a difficult field to be in and it's quite difficult to program right yeah james was telling me about it uh at the booth and so i like assumed he was using some sort of or the studio was using some sort of uh you know engine that was then like you know converting it to compiling it to it something that would be readable on nes and he was like no we're just writing them in assembly and i'm like what it's it's really a nightmare (laughs) to put it lightly to put it lightly because here's the thing especially when it comes to having freelancers come and go oh yeah one person writes something assembly and then something comes up and they're gone for like you know a month or two and they come back and but someone else has been working on it you can write assembly a lot of different ways and it does not always mesh well you know so you really it's it it, it can be an, an endeavor sometimes but it's it's really what I, what I like most about it is that to make games in assembly you really have to be passionate about the project because no one just learns assembly there, there's no real application for it these days I think like PlayStation 1 is when they started to actively use C. And C, once you start working with C, you can then port things over like so easily. Right. You know, but like if we want to port a NES game anywhere, like I, I used to ask them like, what, like when ideas like Coffee Crisis come up, I'm like, well, what's, what, how long does it take for you to turn a, uh, like a uh, game like Coffee Crisis over to PC? And I, you know, you think like you already have all the framework built, you can just move it over. He's like months, like, you know, like just months and months because you're doing it from scratch. You, you sure you have the art, but you're really, uh, you're really starting over from scratch coding wise. Which is why it makes sense that you see a lot of people starting with some sort of higher level code or engine or construct and then like creating tools to then convert it down into assembly that the NES can read. Yeah. And, uh, I sadly, I'm, I don't know a lot about the fine details of that. I know that it's popular to uh, to make like you know ROM hacks and stuff like that, where you take a assembled thing and you convert it over. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually get kind of defensive when people call our games ROM hacks because it makes it makes us sound like we're like some small like two man crew. Like <laughs> you know, it feels like it's a uh, like like we're trying to be a fine wine and people are calling us like you know bathtub moonshine (laughs) yeah yeah what you guys are doing aren't technically like repros either right because repro is usually like repurposing an old cartridge is if i understand the definition of repo like you guys are custom fabricating these aren't you oh yeah yeah everything's done our our, our cartridges are, are custom made our boards are they even have our logo like put on these fresh new boards um I I would almost argue that the quality of our cartridges match, if not are a higher quality than the originals, you know, because we have, we really didn't spare any expense because the, I mean, sure it's a game, but what makes cartridges unique over modern day, like everything being digital or even discs is they're meant to be displayed. So, you know, rather than just put in a shelf. It's really kind of art. That's the way I see it. And that's the way I try to promote it. I mean, there's even a nostalgia factor with like the feel and the touch and the shape of an NES cartridge. At least I have that. And then like even, and that even exists for like the Famicom cartridges because like growing up, not having been exposed to a Famicom cart 
And then like later in life, seeing those and like it has a completely different shape and color. And it's like and these Famicom carts are all these different colors and like the labels look completely different. I always thought it was fascinating. And that's nothing is that it, it all really goes down to like just the art in, in itself of like the cartridge itself and the cover art. Like I'm going to keep going back to discs, but discs haven't really changed in the way they look in like what, like 20 years almost. Mm-hmm. And that's. And that's kind of boring because we went through before that we went through we went through like a 10, 15 year period where everything was changing all the time. Really, it was the uh, Nintendo sixty four that was the last of the car- the popular cartridges, and after that, just everything looks the same. Like you know, I, if you close your eyes and you put your hand in a bin, you can pick out the cartridges and you'll know which ones. But I dare you to try the same with you know PlayStation one and after. You're never gonna know what you're holding. Right. And then, and then now we're getting into, you know, switch cartridges, which are like, you know, like only the size of like a quarter and a half. And, uh, it's, I saw a picture, uh, I think it was Steven Totillo put up a picture showing the switch version of Breath of the Wild other than the Wii U version. He's like, well, at least the Wii U version has this going for it because, you know, the disc, you could actually see the artwork that was printed on the disc, whereas on the switch cart, you could barely see what was going on. Well, you you know that the uh the the taste thing they put on them right yeah 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 the bittering agent their, their, their bittering agent is there because they're so small people will eat them that's that's a sad that's a sad reason like like imagine they're they're in a planning board worried that people are going to eat and choke on their cartridges like that's an actual concern there's a board member he has a bowl full of them he's just crunching on he's like they're delicious <laughs> we need to, these are too delicious we need to tone this down <laughs> we need to solve this problem there but you know there's some person whose actual job was to lick the cartridges and be like no 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 worse this is too good it's like that guy wanted the job he wanted the job at like the ben and jerry's factory where he gets to taste test the ice cream but they didn't hire him so he had to settle for this one that's so sad because, you know, there's some guy with amazing taste buds who's being wasted on licking cartridges. <laughs> oh, so bitter. But it's not bitter enough. It's a job, I guess, you know. <laughs> it's a living. Yeah. So that's to me, that's really sad because, I yeah, I, I'm actually looking at like my Switch case, my case and cart- cartridge right now. And they're so tiny and pitiful. Like, it's almost like, you know, you're meant to lose these. Like, yeah. Like, you know, or, or you step on them. Like if I remember if I, like growing up, I had a, I had a, a Sega, or a, a Super Nintendo game, uh, a Nindo. It was a really, it's obscure, but really fun title. And uh, we had an English okay. Mastiff that chewed on it and just, oh. but you know what he, for a Mastiff, he chewed on that for a long time and it's still, <laughs> you know, still uh, plugged right in just fine. And it ran? Oh, it ran. Yeah. Cause, uh, cause it, you know, it, it's basically like the the cartridge was like a like a shield, like a just a shell. Right. You really had to. You really had to be angry at someone to break their cartridge. You really had to have some some fueled rage to get through that. You really had to have it out for this cartridge. Oh yeah, because it was a dedicated process of breaking that cartridge. It's not like now where you can snap a disc. You know, you throw that thing out of, off a two story building, it's fine. I I know for a fact. I've I've dropped one. <laughs> Yeah. And a fit of rage. And a fit of rage. And you feel bad and you go back and you're like, oh, it's okay. I forgot these things are indestructible. That's good. Yeah. I've always, I always have a love hate relationship with watching like fall tests with like consoles. Oh, yeah. And you see some, it's like the GameCube was infamous for being like indestructible. And then the, the PS2 is like a nil away for it just snaps in half. 
And they always do it. It just comes out too. Like people like fight in the streets for a PlayStation Two, and people are just throwing it off of roofs. <laughs> Let's see if it breaks. Ugh. And and now they do it with just smartphones. Like I saw one with this guy who's just grilling like all of the the flagship phones from one year. It was like an iPhone, like 4S, and a Samsung Galaxy, whatever. Ugh. And I was just like, dude, wow, holy crap. Those are not cheap. Like phones are ridiculous. It, it's amazing how fast you replace them for being the price of like a crappy car. Yeah, no kidding. But we don't know that because we're paying it piecemeal, and then you just roll over into the next one. Oh yeah, it's really it, it. It it's like phones are basically like an addiction now. You're like I gotta get the new phone. Vox put out a really good video about like how UI design on phones works to like keep you addicted to them or keep you constantly looking at them. And then they had some like tips for how to make sure your phone doesn't become like your master. And one of them was uh, turn off any notifications that aren't human originated. So if it's not like a text or a like I get notifications from Chipotle, the Chipotle app, it's like we would love to hear from you. And I'm like, what? Why? Why? And so it says any any one that originates from like something programmatic, you should turn all those off because it causes you to be less. You 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 chase that that high less because they said one of the reasons why they're so addictive is because. They're random in terms of like the feeling they give you. So if every notification you got was positive, you would get bored of that, of the repetition. So you'd be less interested in looking at your phone. But if they're like, some put you in a good mood or some put you in a bad mood, then you are constantly checking your phone just to see what, how you're going to feel about it. So that's why you got kind of get these like neutral ones, like answer our survey. And then you get, you know, positive messages from friends and family and then negative ones. Maybe it's weird. That makes complete sense. And, you know, that's why there are no really easy apps out there that just turn everything off for you because, you know, places that those aren't allowed. I'd love an app that instantly turned all those off, but, that, but you know, the stores aren't going to allow those because, as you said, you know, they want to keep you on it. Yep, yep, yep. So I've been, like, slowly kind of trying to shut stuff down. Like, I constantly, like, I still have HQ installed, even though I haven't touched it in, like, months. And I got the notification at 3 p.m. today. It's like, hey, it's HQ time. And I'm like, not today, Scott. I'm uninstalling you because I haven't used you and I'm getting sick of the, getting these notifications. I, I totally see that. I, I have a little games folder right now of like, you know, 10, 12 games. And I know it takes seconds to erase them, but I just never have those seconds or I never feel like it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, what if, what if I want it really badly later? What if I want to go back to Disney Crossy Road? Yeah. And when you're like, like, no, no, you know, it, yeah, it's like you almost have to, you almost have to say goodbye. <laughs> you farewells. They, they they warn you too, like if you uninstall it randomly, we'll delete all your progress. You're like, oh, but I've already spent a hundred shameful hours on this. Right. It's like my progress. No. Like if your progress matters at all. You know, it's it's like like idle games. I'm so defensive over idle games. I won't. I'm like, but all the time I spend doing nothing, I'm not ready to give that up. Right. Right. So getting back to, to talking about Megacat a little bit, I'm really interested in like kind of hearing about this strategy the studio has because you say you, you guys kind of employ a decent amount of freelancers and stuff. And obviously people work remote. The studio's based out in like Pittsburgh, but you're in Florida and I'm sure you got people everywhere. Um, can you speak to that a bit? Like I'm curious, like, you know, because I, I currently just enlisted the help of another developer for one of the games I'm working on. And um, it's really interesting kind of, working thinking about those strategies for like all right how do i seek out help how do i you know how do i 
ensure this person's going to be a good fit for our team, especially since, you know, none of us are really going to see each other in person a lot. Well, um, that's, th- that's kind of the, the risks, I guess, of, uh, of freelance is that it, it can be trial and error. And I, and what we do to start off is if people want to program, we actually get a lot of people that are interested or passionate, like, Hey, I grew up on, you know, the nest. I'd really like to be a part of your project, you know? And what we do is we run a test, you know, we get, we give them a, we have a standardized test. We say, you know, here, you know, uh, try it out. And truth be told about like nine out of 10 people fail that it's, it, it's harsh, but you know, poorly programmed assembly programs are a nightmare to fix. It's like, you know, it almost better to start over. So then, then after that, we have about one out of 10, you know, the one, the one, the remainder, uh, we ask, you know, Hey, okay. So you've seen what this is. You know, if you'd like a project, we'd like to work something out with you. And then it's just like a, a more strict filtering process because people come, people come and go, like you think you're really, pa- well, it goes back to what I was saying before, where, you know, you have people that are really big fans of retro, but it's not exactly that. It's more like, uh, you're really a fan of say, you know, Zelda, the first Zelda, you grew up with that, but it, it, you might not be a fan of say, uh, making a game that's not like that, you know, so. People are so we 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 have people that come and go, and then we have long term people that you know are just that they're consistent and you know down for it. And I guess that's I guess in a less ranty way that is uh that's just the the struggles of working with freelance. You know, if you have someone that's been around for a long time and they're a really good performer, you basically want to try to make them more of a permanent thing. That's interesting. That's interesting. To think about that, especially like, yeah, and I agree, like if, if you have a temp hire, you have a freelancer and like they become a really good mesh, you really do want to kind of like put them on the track towards being a permanent member of your team. Oh, yeah. And I mean, MegaCat has had people like actually move to the location, like if they if they're up for it, of course, you know, but a lot of people, you know, they don't know what they're doing. They find this. It's a, it's a surprise passion. And then there's something they want to turn to a career and we're, you know, and then if things line up, we're like hey, you know, if you want to do this, you know, come on down. Yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to take it from this is if you find someone really promising that, you know, it's worth it's worth taking that step to secure them. Because if you don't, I guarantee you someone else is going to find, you know, someone who can, they're going to find a use for someone that can program, you know, assembly perfectly. And, right, yeah. And it's it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a fight, you know, so... Do you notice that at all? Do you notice any sort of like competition from any specific like I'm trying to think like what what are like the major like shops in games or out of games just in the tech sector in general like that require assembly programmers? It really can go down to other retro gamers. Um I don't really know much of applications besides that off the top of my head. I would say and I mean to toot our own horn, but we are one of the biggest retro groups you know developing games like it, it's a project you know some people work on games here and there but but once again there's it's like i don't want to call them I'm, i most certainly will not call them you know homebrews because there's a big difference i'll never i'll never do that i've I, it's one of those things where i i kind of threw that around harmlessly when i before i really knew much about retro but there's a big difference smaller groups that work on say less games or you know have like they have a small dedicated group you know they might they might be looking for people with assembly, but it's more of like, 
I guess it's it's different. It, it's I haven't worked with other retro companies, but there's so few, and there's even less people that that have these skills because everything else, like like I once asked James, I'm like, well, I I think I asked him like about assembly. I was like, well, you know, what does assembly turn into? Like, you know, if you know C, you can then build things with C and C plus plus, but assembly really doesn't become anything. It's kind of a phased out, you know. Uh, programming language so you have to find people that just want it for passion and i'm i apologize if i'm saying that a lot i know i am but no it's fine that's 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 like the fuel of this industry is passion so you have to have like at least a, a certain amount of passion um otherwise i don't think you're getting very far especially in independent especially in independent retro games and uh i t- i totally agree i think this is really a, a strong passion project and and there are definitely people that come and go, but you know, from I like, I've definitely seen people that I know are sticking around. To that point, I was I was checking out the Mega Cat website, and like, obviously, it has you know your your NES games, and then it has like um, some stuff about log jammers, your non NES game, um, which you do have an NES version of. But the uh, there is like a, a section for for hiring for like hiring the studio for for projects, and I was curious like what that was about. Do you guys also do? services client services for other stuff and is that strictly centered on games or is that for other services as well um i mean there's if there's oh it really depends on a project to project basis like you know uh, um for for now let's just strictly i'll strictly just talk about the retro ideas that if someone what, what's really cool about retro is that it pairs well with other retro like you can take an old an, an old movie series or an old game series, you know, and, and they're like, that, that's maybe died out, you know, like, like picture a, a game you're really fond of that just didn't continue. But, you know, maybe for an anniversary, that company, say, I don't know, let's say Capcom as an example, wants to bring, you know, n- not exactly modernize it, but kind of refresh it, you know, so they might contact a company like Mega Cat to make a modernization or a modern retro game. Um, or, you know, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe for a promotion, Ideas I've I've personally thrown around, um, none of these are are happening. But this is just more hypothetical. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't want to give false promises or anything. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea of say like an arcade machine, you know, like for a movie promotion or something, or I don't know, a promotion of a new game, like you know things. Uh, like I I can always picture like us making like an arcade machine with the old retro graphics, like an old side scroll beat 'em up, like um, Coffee Crisis for a promotion because. It's that type of physical merchandise, you know, or physical promotions, which, you know, ties back into cartridges um, that really stand out and are memorable. People are like, oh, look, you know, movie such and such is coming out in a few months. Look at this awesome arcade machine. It sticks with you. Um, And I feel like videos and stuff like that are nice, but I really feel like it's something you can physically hold or play with, you know, physically. I'm just going to keep saying that Um, is what really helps create lasting memories. So to go full circle, um, think projects like that we typically contact, but but people have contacted us with, you know, they want a company that's really good at capturing that old nostalgia. You know, if it's not like an old cartridge, but the actual theme of it, where you know, um, if you've I, if you've seen the actual inside the cases on the website, like you know, we, we do everything traditional, whether it's the manuals, the, the packaging, and you know, some people want to use that as their marketing point. You know, it's like, hey, you know, remember the good old times, kind of, but with gaming. 
have you seen the tiny arcade machines? I have not. They make modern, they work with like, I believe it's Atari and they make, um, like one seventh scale arcade machines. I don't know, eight inches tall and they work They're actual working arcade machine. And you know, that Kickstarter is doing great, you know, and uh, a lot of com- places want them like even arcades. Cause you can have this tiny little arcade machine next to its original one, you know, and you can both play on it and it's just a fun, you know, nostalgic thing. And it also allows people to have their own arcade machines without dropping, you know, whatever insane amount of money it is for an arcade machine. I know it's thousands. Yeah. Depending on the machine. Yeah. And then you have to worry about maintenance and all that stuff. Yeah, it, it goes back to like the assembly thing. Good luck finding someone who's, you know, fixing arcade machines these days. I mean, like things like joysticks and buttons, like that. You can. That's pretty easy to do. But you know, once you get into the electronics in the back, or even like the cabinet art, like the side art, like what if the paint's all scratched the hell or it's fading? It's like when you want to touch that back up. It's like, all right, well. You have to get someone very specialized or very good at what they do to, to fix that. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm personally a fan of a DDR. So I when I find a machine I like at a at somewhere where I'm just traveling, I'm, I'm so excited. But you'll see ones that are broken, and they're just broken for a while. Because, you know, not many people, like, arcade machines vary so much. Like, that's all about pressure plates and stepping and, you know, updating all that stuff. And and it's, it's a, it, it sounds like a very lucrative job, but... Once again, it's very specific. You know, you might go in time, long periods of time without any work because those things are durable, you know, until they're not. Yeah, my girlfriend's a big uh, DDR player. And whenever we go to conventions together, she like tries to look one out. And and like, you know, shows are really bad about like, yeah, we got we got that DDR thing. Yeah, sure. Come over and play it. And it's like the knockoff one. Like, I forget what the other uh, dancing game is. Oh, man. Oh, uh I can't think of it right now. I, I I know there's ones that actually mimicked DDR, and then of course there's Step Mania, which uses DDR pads, but that's the uh, PC version. Or like my girlfriend has like two DDR pads for home for the original Xbox, but like one of them's crapping out, and like that's yeah, that's frustrating to her because you know then she can't play DDR with someone else. Is you, you know they have to play solo. Yeah, uh, I I really love the competitive nature of it. Like like that's one of the things. There's nothing better than practicing it. And then go against people they they don't have the pads at their home. You're like, oh, <laughs> you did okay, I guess. <laughs> you know, you, the people that play so often always want to play, right? Because I always win. Oh yeah, uh, winning's like winning's the best part of playing against friends. No <laughs> matter what anyone says, or just in general, winning's great. Yeah, now, anyone who's anyone who has said that winning isn't everything loses. <laughs> sounds like a loser to me yeah i've never if i've been on a win streak i that's the last thing i ever say <laughs> did speaking of dance pads and then also retro games are you the guys that make that that cat one is that you guys oh uh sitting kitten have you heard of that one is that the one I, f- I don't know it by name but it's like the one that you play with your cat like the cat sits on the the ddr pad i help i helped come up with, the, with uh one of the first uh iterations of that actually during uh during a rant with uh, James, we, we bounced the idea <laughs> off of Sing Cat. I, I don't know where it's at right now because I haven't seen it. But yes, yes, I think that's really cool. I like the idea of of incorporating pets into uh into your daily gaming, you know. And and James definitely knows how to to really like take an uh, take a very basic idea and flesh it out into you know competitive cat gaming. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh... 
yeah, my, my friend Ruthie checked it out at the uh, at MAGFest. And, and I was trying to remember if it was you guys that were working on that game or if it was the other retro game booth. But it's good to know. Good to know I didn't mess that up and didn't yeah. say like, so you guys work on this game, right? And you're like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. I was going to say um, about competitors. Um, I use that term playfully because it's really like there really is no competitors when it comes to retro gaming it's a really like like i would say it's competitive but you, you know like on a lot of other companies where you're competing against other people it's really not that way because there's so few other people working on retro games it's not really like a like a, it's not really like a fight like you know like triple a titles they it's a bloodbath if you're just a small indie trying to fight them because you have to compete with a group that has I don't know, make up whatever number percent more of a budget. Like, it doesn't matter to them, you know. Like, some games take, like, $100 million, and like, oh, we're under budget. And then you're an indie company, you're like, like, I could have just ran with that money and retired. Yeah. I could afford rent this month. Hooray! <laughs> and it, that, that's what it breaks down to. So, you know, you're not really... It's kind of lax in that way. And as some people might see it as, like like, intimidating, you know, like like having quote unquote competitor other you know uh, retro gamers, but it's really that's really just a non necessary stress because you can focus on such a niche you know specific game. Like if you want to make something like Zelda, you know, then that's totally different than you know any other game you want to make. You know, unless you're purposely trying to make a game that's exactly competing with uh, you know another group, it's like you really have to try hard. You know, so this. It feels much more lax, I would personally say. Even from like developer to developer, if I speak to like a developer at you know a larger studio or someone that works at a larger studio, I I don't even feel that kind of animosity. Like I I agree with you that there's really no competitiveness from the perspective of I I want to win, I want them to fail, kind of mentality anywhere in the games industry. From what I can tell, from my experiences. Um, there's definitely no, like, we're Northrop Gruen, and they're Boeing, and they need to fail, because we need this contract. And, and really, that's the, the way you just said it. That's the healthy way of doing it, because when you, cause you can learn a lot from other developers. And if you burn those bridges by being a bloodthirsty, you know, developer, then, you know, that's, that's not healthy for either side. And, I mean, these days, honestly, games, games like go through their their lifespans are so much shorter like have you noticed that like the the newest deus ex you know it was a bit like it just went like a flash like people are talking about it and then gone and you know even even really popular games it's like sequels are coming out every single year now and before you used to wait like years and years and years like like zelda you wait years typically for a like a proper sequel and then like well call of duty for example every year you you basically you're basically paying for just like new new map packs almost coming out so fast, and that's why you're kind of seeing like the industry move towards at least at the the larger level move towards this more games as a service software as a service kind of model because you know they just can't keep up with the the influx of games like you know if you even look at the indie level it's like oh look Gorgo just came out. oh nope now it's uh, Celeste oh nope now it's Iconoclast like uh, you know it's just constant 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 constant. Oh, well, that's such a scary thing. I like 
moving since we're we get you know um coffee crisis and log jammers are both coming out for the pc that's such a scary feeling because you really have to plan the date you release and so far in advance like you know we were actually playing to uh to move coffee crisis out a little earlier and then steam's like oh by the way we're having a sale coming up and we're like no like you just you just smack that right <laughs> off the date there's not even a second thought because you like you will not make sales if you do it those days because the front page is for new releases except during sales, which it goes then for the biggest sales. And it's it's that is something like so new. Steam games have just come out in floods. There's actually like I've seen some, you know, charts where it's like eight times more than seven years ago. You know, because anyone could release a game. And uh and it's it's a scary thing. And I think that's why I'm like I really like the retro carts because they're, it's based on being retro. So your concept doesn't outdate because it's already it's already outdated. You know, it's more of and I guess I guess I guess that's where I'm going with it. Yeah, that's a benefit to a physical cartridge. Yeah, you have this alternate appeal, this niche appeal that allows you to stay viable. Yeah, and that's that to me is what I I want to personally like wherever the future holds. Like whether you know whether however we shift, I want to keep a strong retro foundation because it's like whether we, whether we like it or not, that's gonna be what people think about when they think of Mega Cat Studios. You know, even if we only let's say we made I don't know one retro game for every fifteen other games, just you know as a hypothetical, people are gonna be like, oh, you guys make that, and I think that's some people like worry about an identity like that, like if you try to shift, but I think that's strong. I think that's a good. Think as long as you know you make quality, you know retro games. Yeah, agreed. I mean that works for you know anywhere uh, in the industry. Make quality games, and and at least you have that part locked down. I'm not gonna say you know you get ensured success if you make a quality game because there's so many other factors that play into that. But oh, it's totally true. And like what you were talking about before, it's like how the the barrier to entry has been lowered so much that's practically non-existent, especially for the PC with Steam, like. It's that's frightening, but I also wouldn't have it any other way. Like I, I would prefer that as opposed to is like, oh, we have to know a contact at Valve, and then you also have to go through maybe some sort of archaic like handshake, you know, backdoor deal to ensure yourself that you get onto the platform. It's like no, I would rather have it be a lowest possible barrier to entry, and then like I have to prove my metal, I have to prove myself to the customer that my game is worth buying. I totally agree. I mean. The the reason why a lot of really big hits like say Shovel Knight or Undertale they even had a chance was because of the accessibility you know like imagine if you know those had been skipped it would have been it would have been really sad because a lot of those you know have a well just a strong impact on the curve of games even more so than mo- than like AAA titles you know like I don't know I find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and that was even during the era of Greenlight, which like was already was a higher barrier than what they have now with Steam Direct, where it's like, nope, just pay us a hundred dollars. Yeah, I mean, it's so that's so weird too, because because like they were so concerned about like like that the whole basis of Greenlight was to to do a quality control, and then and then they're like, oh no no, like something you know people were worried about uh, shovelware being you know spammed out, but but that so then they fixed that with a with an easier system to ex- to get into and like you know where you just need to have 100 bucks i don't know if you know a lot about what some of the the problems with the shovelware was but what it was is that a, a game would sell for uh 
don't know, 25 cents. And it would come out with uh, cards, Steam cards. So what you do is then you have people that would, uh, bought in those to farm the cards off the 25 cent game. You know, you, you basically have them botting like a ton of these games at once and that was racking up cash. That's why there's a limit on the, uh, you have to have a special password lockout for uh, mass selling cards now on Steam. Interesting. I did not know about that. I know about like the most recent thing where it's like, a lot of a lot of there's like a, a studio in particular i don't remember the name off the top of my head but they were doing like a lot of unity asset store flips and just selling those and they had like a dozen of them on steam and then valve just like cut through it with a machete and was just like nope nope these are all gone these are all gone they might have blocked that studio from publishing games on the plat or on, on steam but i'm not exactly sure I, I don't know either i guess there's more there's more there had to be more than one problem with it so there's a big that's a big discussion I have with my uh, developer friends here in in Richmond is about like you know oh Valve should curate more and you know I kind of go back and forth on it like I don't I don't believe algorithms are the end all be all solution for everything we obviously can see that with like where YouTube and Facebook are right now but uh, I don't know I I. I, I don't want to say Valve is go- doing a good job, but I don't want to say Valve is doing a bad job either. I I, I don't know. I, I agree because it's it's kind of like if things... That, people always have such a simple solution until they're the ones that have to do it. Like, you know, like Steam, Steam could be doing the best job that they possibly can be, and it's just that, you know, there's always people that are upset, you know, so... I'm sure there are better solutions, but maybe right now it maybe just needs some more time. I'm sure they have a lot of people working on it, you know, because reputation, you know, you want to be the best platform. Even even like platforms like Steam, it's competitive nature, you know, you can't slip up. So because there's always alternatives popping up. So, you know, I think people's argument against that point, though, is that the alternatives are nowhere near as large, like itch is like becoming a very like well-regarded platform but still not it's not getting every game like you can't buy you know the newest call of duty on itch you can buy like you know triple i games on there like i can go on there and buy gone home which makes me feel really nice because the gone home itch page looks just as poorly designed as my itch page (laughs) but uh jonathan is there anything else you want to discuss well let's see I, i guess i'd like to talk a little bit about uh coffee crisis um coming out for the uh for the pc we're aiming this is not a definitive date but this is a what i'm telling you right now and might be scolded at later um <laughs> well i can cut it out if i need to we're if aiming need to. for the end of march Ooh, that's pretty soon and then log jammers in about a month or so after that we're doing we we get kind of like like uh play test crazy here like like a little bit more so than we should but that's because when you when you work with uh, retro games like cartridges you don't get to patch that is one of the concerns <laughs> about being a uh, retro game company in a modern day because like back in when when NES was new and there was a bug in the game you just accepted it someone's live streaming your game and it freaks out and then they're like well you know oh that's that's not a fun time but it's the it's the fear it's the fear that drives us there's no day one patches for for retro games no 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 it's it's like version 2.0 you know i guess mail it in please and well 
yeah. at least with like arcade games, like you would have like uh, operators come in every once in a while and they would update the boards. I know that was a big thing, especially for like the bigger titles like Mortal Kombat. Yeah. Yep. Well, actually, that I just thought about it. Um, with the original Coffee Crisis, we had a uh, we had when it first came out for the Sega Genesis. <laughs> it's funny just that phrase it's like when it came out a couple years ago for the sega genesis it's only like a year old but um it had it had some bugs and uh we didn't know about and so we had we, we contacted people and we said hey listen like we have a new, we, if you met we actually had uh we had we had them if they said a picture of them smashing the old cartridge because we wanted because the idea was we wanted to be very metal because the whole game is a very metal feel Mm-hmm. take your cartridge and smash it and we'll send you a new one you know nice i like that got all sorts of pictures just you know destroyed cartridges and we're like yeah you know and w- some people were a little off put by it but but you know i thought it fun i think it's a fun idea you know got a nothing more metal than crushing your old cartridge and then showing proof of it so what was the best picture you got from that Oh man, you know what? I'll have to I'll have to see if uh if James has any on hand and maybe we'll uh maybe we'll get him to send you one. Yeah, if you if you send me one, I'll use it for the uh podcast art for this episode. I'll see what he can dig up. They recently <laughs> moved to a new place, so I, I I don't know if it's I don't know if they're like actual photos or not, but I'll have him uh have him try to send you one definitely. Cool. Awesome. Um so yeah, you said coffee crisis coming possibly end of march and then log jammers afterwards if i have anything to say with it about it then yeah um, i mean i and i kind of i kind of do because i <laughs> pr side <laughs> it's kind of my job it's kind of but you know we'll see <laughs> if if that go if that happens then yes and then we'll be hopefully uh you know we'll be pitching that at uh at pax east i'm getting cool this, right Awesome. Because yeah. It'd be yeah. The end of March. So yeah. Should talk- yeah. Early April. Yep. And then uh and then log jammers a month or so after, I'm thinking. We are currently dealing with uh certifications for for uh Microsoft. That's what I was supposed to bring up. Yeah, we're going through the certification process right now. So assuming that that all goes on time, you know, we we can't update any play builds until those go through. I was told I don't know. I'm I'm just going to fall back to the the I'm a PR guy cop out. But assuming everything goes, that's where I'm for those dates. Sweet. Yep. Yeah, we'll definitely. Uh, I'll come by and say, hey, are you going to be? Are you going to be at Pax East? Um, I will not. Florida makes it a little difficult. Um, in the future, I want to hit some up, but once again. You know, I'm the PR guy. I can't tell you that information yet. I'm sorry. It's a secret. It's a surprise. It's a secret. I'm not allowed. Well, I'll be at PAX East because, Jonathan, we just found out that our panel series, Hidden Gems, Discovering the Undiscovered at PAX, is coming back for its second showing at PAX East this year. So I'm very excited about that. That sounds awesome. Uh, yeah, it's going to be it's gonna be a good time. Hope to check out a lot of cool games. Hope to swing by the Mega Cat booth. Oh, we'll be there. And see how everything's doing. Yeah. Um, but on that note, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Um, Jonathan, where can people find out more about Mega Cat Studios? You can go to megacatstudios.com. Sweet. Yep. And if you like this podcast and you want to listen to more of our podcast, you can check us out at ward-games.com 
forward slash podcast. We're also on Twitter at Ward Video Games. Or look us up on iTunes or Google Play, Wardcast. Just type that in. Jonathan, thank you again. Thank you again. Your, your, see, yours was much better than mine. I just had a website, man. You, you got this down. <laughs> well, when you have 125 episodes, you you kind of ram it into your head about the proper way to do an outro and make sure people go check out the show. I'll work on that. That's definitely next thing. <laughs> Don't worry. We'll do, we'll do it again. We'll do it again. We'll do a redo sometime soon. All right. Start it over. <laughs> we'll do it live. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me.